Welcome to this special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a conversation about Israel's election, what happened, who won, and what comes next, between Natan Sachs, director of the Center for Middle East Policy here at Brookings, and Ilana Dayan, host of the investigative journalism program UVDA on Israel's Channel 12. We're grateful that she took the time to call in to our studio from Israel. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, here's Natan Sachs with Ilana Dayan. Ilana, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a treat to have you here on the Brookings Podcast. Thanks, Nathan. It's great to be with you. So it's been an eventful 24 hours. I'm guessing you haven't slept much. It's been an eventful month and an eventful few years. Netanyahu won the elections. Uh, It seemed close at first, but he won a decisive victory. It's his fifth uh, victory overall and fourth consecutive. In July, I think July 20th, he'll become the longest-serving Israeli prime minister. And it seems to me the opposition has basically tried everything. They've tried now security generals, three chiefs of staff in one party. Previously, they've tried an economic approach. Netanyahu just keeps winning. What's the top line? Is Netanyahu King Big Bibi, King of Israel? Is, is he just here to stay? It is King Bibi, and it is Bibi's time. And these elections were a referendum about Bibi. The campaign was about Bibi, the elections were about Bibi, and the results are all Bibi. It's kind of, if you take this guy's affinity with his base, if you take not only his political skills, his diplomatic record, his rhetoric, his charisma, his coming and going, you know, anywhere from the White House to the Kremlin, his good friends and allies from overseas who have done everything they can from recognizing the Golan Heights to organizing a ceremony in Moscow last week. You take all of that and you put it aside and you stay only with one thing, with the ability of Bibi to correspond with his base. I have been there tonight in the headquarters of the Likud party. I have seen the people who vote for him. These are rational Israelis. Many of them lower middle class. Many of them are middle class. Many of them have voted Likud forever. Many of them are rational voters who just appreciate Bibi's risk management formula. They don't overlook his corruption affairs. They care for corruption investigations. They are minded, they are well-informed, they are enlightened, but they perceive Bibi as the one best single guardian of Israel's interests. And they think that he can keep this house together. And you know, he delivers. And this is the one thing that I think people overseas have to understand, and people in Israel from the left wing have to understand, that, uh, of course, there's there's something to, you know, to the tribal aspect of Israeli politics. And uh, I've been with you in Brookings Institute, I guess, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago. And I interviewed Martin Indyk. And he told me about a conversation he had with Bibi back in 1997. Mm-hmm. He had a message from President Clinton to Bibi not to build in a, one of the neighborhoods of Eastern Jerusalem. And Bibi told him, tell the president that I'm sorry, but I will have to, to build there anyway. And Martin asked him why. And he said, because Israeli politics is tribal. 
and I got to feed my tribe. So Bibi knows how to feed his tribe. He does. And it seems like playing to the base is a very successful uh, strategy in Israel for a simple reason, which is his base is very large. However you parse the numbers, you know, the left has tried all these different things that I've mentioned. It's called itself the center. It's brought in right-wingers even, blue and white. The party of Benny Gantz, who was the challenger to Netanyahu in these elections, included real right-wingers like Bogi Alon, the former defense minister from Netanyahu's Likud, and the members of his party uh, who are in no way left or even center. They're, they're center-right. Um, and still, the numbers of the overall blocks are rather stable. The blocks overall look quite similar to the last elections and even the elections before that. And the base of the right wing plus the modern orthodox plus the ultra-orthodox is simply more than 50%. In the United States, we talk about President Trump playing to his base, but of course, the base is much smaller here. He can still win an election like he did in 2016, but it's much harder. You have to bring the base and many others. In Israel, this base has really grown. We've seen a dramatic shift. Is it fair to say, you think, that Israel basically has been set politically since the Second Intifada, since the whole doctrine of the left wing, of the Oslo process seemed to crash in the suicide bombings of the Second Intifada? Has much really changed since then in terms of the map? The short answer is yes, you're right. Uh, And, you know, we can analyze very easily the paradigm that says that not only since the Second Intifada, but even, you know, before that, after Oslo uh, and and the, the huge and terrible and bloody suicide bomb attacks of 1995 and 1996 that both of us remember very, very closely and very sadly, and we've known people who were killed there. And the Israelis ever since are experiencing, a, you know, a kind of cycle that every time you see territory or you see anything to the Palestinians, be it in the Oslo Accords, and then you get the 1995 and 96 uh, bombing attacks, and then comes the Camp David summit in 2000, and you get the second intifada, and then comes the disengagement in 2005, and you get the you know rain of rockets from Gaza ever since. So, so Israelis, yes, have been disillusioned, many of them, both from right and center and even left, from the prospect of even coming remotely close to a peace agreement with the Palestinians in our lifetime. Yes, this is the short, not the short answer, but but I guess the empirical answer. On the other hand, Nathan, uh, you can look at it a, a bit differently. You have 70 members of Knesset, 35 Likud and 35 Blue and White, who are center, center right, center left, not very, very different from each other. Gantz and Netanyahu didn't offer so different solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian problem or to any other problem. Uh, On national security, they don't really differ that much. So you can look at it a bit differently. And the last thing that I would tell you, the only shift that you had, the only shift that you had in terms of, 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 of members of Knesset was the growth of the Haredim, of the ultra-Orthodox parties, both Shas and Yaduta Torah. Other than that, other than that, Bibi's block remained the same, even, even shrinked a little bit. He had 67 in his previous coalition, he's going to have 65 in the next one, presumably. So it's not that Israel has shifted to the right. Israel has been there for a while and has stayed there. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it seems like in this all this time, Israelis have uh, sort of been disillusioned, as you said so well, on mm-hmm. in, in the possibility of solutions of solving this issue. But the question comes back always, and you hear it a lot abroad and in Israel. So what? What what is it that Netanyahu manages to capture in terms of what he offers for the future? I mean, obviously, he's not only running against the policy of the left, which is no longer very relevant, but he's also offering his own record now after so many years in power. What, in essence, do you think is kind of the BB doctrine, if it exists in the eyes of the Israeli voters that's been so popular? There is a doctrine, and the doctrine says we stay put. We don't move. The status quo is better than anything else. We work around it with China and with Oman, with Qatar and with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt and with the United States, with Hungary and with Poland. We don't care about Western Europe. We care less about the democratic side of the aisle in the United States. We work around it. And, and, and therefore, if you, if you ask about, uh, you, you asked about what is his vision for the future, I'm not sure there is any. And I'm not sure that Israelis uh, feel the need, that many Israelis feel the need for any vision like that, which is, which is, which is sad, which is bad news. Uh, you know, I heard someone analyzing the problem a while ago that we used to know the end game. Uh, many Israelis would tell you, like if you ask them a decade or a decade and a half ago, they would tell you, we know how it will end. We know that the land between the sea and the river will have to be divided. We know that Israel will not be able to occupy and, and control the lives of six, seven, eight million Palestinians between the sea and the river. We know that many settlements will have to be dismantled. We know that Jerusalem will have to be governed by some kind of multinational solution. We know that Palestinians will not get the right of return. We know that the water problem will have to be solved somehow. We know the end game. But ever since the second intifada, uh, many Israelis uh, are much more skeptical. And yet, and yet, I think you and I know that if there were to appear a courageous leader on our side and on, the, on their side, and they would come up with this very, you know, obvious endgame, and they would put it on the table, I think that still, even today, if Bibi were to propose such a vision, for the solution of the Israeli-Palestinian problem. And if there happened to be a courageous leader on the other side, I think 75% of the Israelis would sign on to that. And I think 65% of the Palestinians would sign on to that. But I think that our 75% don't believe that their 65% even exists. And their 65% don't believe that our 75% even exists. And there you have it. So do Israelis care that nobody speaks about this? Obviously not. Do they care that nobody proposes anything for the future? Obviously not, because they think that we have more threats than possibilities, more dangers than chances for a better future. And this is, this is not good news, but this is part of the explanation for the Bibi's phenomenon. Yeah, I, I've, you know, elsewhere I've called it sort of an anti-solutionist approach, which is to say that 
I think Netanyahu and actually Yalon, who's with Gantz in the, in the party as well, they look at others in the United States especially who want to come and solve the problem and draw a nice map and bring the parties together to negotiate in good faith. And they think that that will produce some kind of solution. And for Netanyahu or Yalon or others, that seems to be the naive approach, this very American and commendable in many situations approach of solutionism, of trying to solve all problems. They, I think, have a much more pessimistic, they and most Israelis, obviously, have a much more pessimistic view of Israel's fortunes and of the Middle East and a feeling that the problems in the Middle East are ones to be managed. They're chronic problems. You know, Naftali Bennett, the leader of the right, he said a few years ago, he was talking about a friend of his who had shrapnel uh, stuck in his near his spine. I was actually at this conference that he was holding. It was a small conference on public relations for the settler movement, and I, I went to listen in and, and take notes. And he was describing this, and he was saying that his friend had this shrapnel near his back, a friend for the military. It was a little painful to walk, but when he went to the doctors, they said, we can operate and take it out, and you might be fine, but you also might lose the ability to walk overall. And so the question for you is, do you want to manage the problem, live with the pain, or do you want to take a huge risk and maybe be paralyzed? And what Bennett said then is, the answer is clear, don't operate, live with the pain, manage an imperfect world. And I think this sort of encaptures also the way Yalon, but certainly Netanyahu, think about managing the world. It's imperfect, it's bad, but it's what we got. And in the meantime, while we avoid the worst risks, Israel can grow, flourish, its economy uh, can, can grow. And in, and in that sense, offering kind of a hope, which is a much more modest hope. But can it really live, can it, can it really live with the pain? Can it exactly. really live with the schnappen? Can it really manage... The problem, can it really stay a democratic state without solving that problem? These are questions that you and I know that these politicians don't really address. And I think there's, you know, two big things come out of it. First is if you take that kind of conservative approach, it's exactly as you said. If you take that kind of conservative approach, then you would try to keep your options open. You would try to not change reality while you're doing this. You would try to allow yourself in the future to either solve or partially solve things in a way that you can't today. And of course, the current reality on the ground is not that. The current reality is one in which things are sliding in a very particular direction. And on that, I want to ask a, a very important question now about foreign policy, about what this election will mean. Netanyahu made a promise during the campaign, very near the end, that he would start the process of annexing settlement blocks, maybe starting with Gush Etzion, which is near Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem. Others have proposed Malay Adumim, just east of Jerusalem. Um, things that are in the consensus in the Israeli mind, not the Palestinians one, of, of being part of Israel in any deal with the Palestinians. It's part of the settlement blocks that Israel might swap territory for. That would be very much against this conservative kind of doctrine and the Netanyahu approach of just managing and doing as little damage as possible in any direction. It would be much more in line with, say, Naftali Bennett or other people on the right. Do you think he's going to go through with it? Do you think we're actually going to see the annexation of, of territory in the West Bank? And especially, let's keep in mind, Donald Trump here in Washington very recently just recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, where there's an international border, actually. Here in the West Bank, there's disputed lines of an armistice, and the Israelis could claim it's an easier thing for Trump to recognize. Do you think it's going to happen? I'll give you the cynical analysis of it. The cynical analysis, which was delivered on Israeli media even before the elections, was annexation for immunity, which means the notion that Bibi will kind of sell annexation to the 
extreme right parties that he needs for his coalition in return for them voting for his immunity in front of the indictments that are waiting behind the corner. Uh, I think this is not going to happen or the chances of that happening are, are, are not high in my view. Why not? Because of two reasons. One, the, again, the real politic is that Bibi is not dependent now on any one single right-wing party. As it seems now, Bennett and Shaked are not going to be in the Knesset. The extreme right has five members of Knesset, but Netanyahu will also have an alliance with Lieberman, with Kahlon, and with the Orthodox parties. So he will be in a much better position than he thought that he's going to be. He will have a 65 members of Knesset coalition, not a 61, in which case he's, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, much less prone to be black, black, blackmailed. That this is one thing. But the other thing goes back to Bibi Netanyahu's persona. And as much as Bibi is an ideological politician, he has a very well-established worldview, a hawkish worldview, one which is both conservative and tough. He believes in the need to be tough in this violent neck of the woods. But on the other hand, Bibi Netanyahu has proven himself to be a very prudent, cautious, and, um, and, and not adventurous leader. If he thinks by now, after being so many years in power, that the move that he makes can lead uh, to any kind of escalation in the area, he will not take that move. And annexation might mean that. Uh, so I think you can you can parallel these uh, statements of his to those before the 2015 election when he said that he will not have a Palestinian state established alongside the state of Israel and then, you know, took back on it after the elections. I think the, the same will happen now. I'm not sure, but I think that Bibi, more than anything else, is cautious. Some would say afraid to go for very, you know, valiant kind of, uh, of moves. You've, you've known him for many years. You've, you've covered him since he was running in 1996. He, he was very young then. He was 47 when he became prime minister for the first time. And he was then the least experienced uh, prime minister ever. He was only a deputy minister before he entered the residence on Balfour Street. His opponent now, Benny Gantz, would have been even less experienced in the political sense, although he was chief of staff. But what has happened to Bibi since ni- between 1996 and now? His first term then in the 90s was considered a failure in many respects. He lost by a landslide three years later. But now he's won four consecutive times. What's changed? He's obviously aged. Has he matured? Do you think something fundamental about him has changed or not that much? I think many, many things have changed. Uh, the most important of which is his decision to take revenge. Because when Bibi Netanyahu was elected in May of 1996, after Rabin's assassination and after he defeated Shimon Peres, many people within the Israeli elite, within the liberal elite, within the media, took it as a personal offense. They were hostile to Bibi even before he did anything, before he proved himself or disproved, disproved himself. And, and this, this scar 
became uh, or what was that car was transformed into a sentiment of resentment of hostility on Bibi's side towards the media and the liberal elite uh, that was building and building and building. And after the 2015 election, it erupted. And I could, you know, I could feel it personally yes. with this rather violent response that he sent to an investigative piece of ours in which he called me extreme left and 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 was very personal and very low and very violent. And, and that was kind of the watershed mark after which all hell broke loose and and Bibi marked the media as the enemy of the people, a slogan that you know all too well. And it became an asset for him. The fight with the media became an asset rather than a liability because he knew that the base sees it as, as something that, you know, that carries the sentiment of the base towards the very same media. And, and this is something that changed. Even yesterday night, even tonight, in his victory speech in Tel Aviv, on the one hand, you had him shining and beaming, and you could see him so happy and so proud and rightly so of his amazing achievement. And even, you know, saying something which people expected him to say, not, uh, not everybody was sure that he would say, I will be the prime minister of all Israelis, Jews and non-Jews, right and left. On the other hand, he could not, you know, he could not help it. And he said, we won in spite of the hostile media. So we were, you know, again, the enemy. Uh, in that regard, he changed. And, and I think that they, that change is, is there to stay. And in that regard, you can see, you can, you can draw many similar similarities between Bibi's world and Trump's world, although these are truly very, very different personas. Yes, it's an interesting one. The, the two of them, as you say, are such different personas. Um, Netanyahu is very cautious. He's very studious and erudite. He's a very... Um, careful man with a lot of experience. Trump is obviously completely new to politics, or was at least two years ago, and just in temperament, a very different person. And, you know, simply put, Netanyahu is an intellectual, yes. which I'm afraid nobody, not even Trump, would say about himself. Perhaps not, yeah. He might, but no one else would, I think. And <laughs> and moreover, that, um, I mean, even detractors of Netanyahu would not say he he's reckless or any of the things that detractors of Trump say. But there is this interesting alliance between them. In the United States, obviously, especially on the left side of the political map, there is a very strong sense that Netanyahu was aligned with Trump. He, of course, previously had a very bad relationship with Barack Obama, whom Democrats generally liked. Then he seemed to win the battle against Obama since the Iran deal was, uh, or the U.S. withdrew from the Iran deal, Trump did. And now he's very close to Trump and, and obviously benefits from that in the Israeli sense, in the Israeli political scene. But Trump is much more popular in Israel than he is in the United States. And in the United States, and especially among Democrats, that can be a problem. Do you think there's much awareness to this in Israel? Or you said earlier that Netanyahu has simply maybe written off the Democratic Party and thinks there's not much future there for Israel anyway, so might as well get whatever you can from Trump. Isn't this a very dangerous strategy going forward in terms of bipartisan support for Israel? You know, I, I, I'm trying to imagine middle-of-the-road Israelis listening to this conversa conversation mm -hmm. and saying, oh, well, this guy from Brookings Institute, of course he would warn us from right. 
uh, from the end to the bipartisan support to Israel in the United States, from Bibi's moves with Trump against the Democratic Party, with uh, the uh, evangelic, whatever, uh, Christians uh, in, in the United States, uh, against the others, with the uh, Orthodox Jews in Israel, against the Reform Jews in the US. Um, and, and I mean, even Bibi's supporters, would, even Bibi himself, even Bibi himself, wouldn't uh, disagree with you that it's better for Israel uh, to get the bipartisan support and so forth and so forth. Uh, but, but, you know, as I see it, he takes advantage of his friendship with Trump. I think there's no reason to criticize him for that. Really, I don't. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure that uh, Israel is now all forgotten by the other side of the aisle. Um, and I th think that some of the statements by, by new congressmen or congresswomen uh, is yet another proof that there is an anti-Israeli sentiment on the other side of the aisle. Um, but, but really, Nathan, it's, it's, it's nothing that, uh, that many Israelis or, or, or most Israelis are too bothered by. And, and I think we would agree that the day the administration in the US changes, the day Trump's days are over, then there will be another kind of dialogue with Israel by another kind of administration given that perhaps it will be a democratic administration. The basic interests are still there. The basic values, I hope, I hope, are still there. Uh, the basic frequency on which the relationship are managed for 70 years now are there. So it's taken another, you know, another, another alley in, with Trump and Bibi and another one with Trump or with Obama and Bibi, and it will take yet another one with, say, what, Beto O'Rourke and Bibi, Joe Biden and Bibi. Your guess is as good as mine. I think, I think your point is very good. Not, perhaps it will not be Bibi, by the way. It might not. That's right. I want to get to that. Um, well, I, I'd like to turn now a bit to the domestic scene just a little bit. There's other results, of course, from this election. Israel has a multi-party system, so it's not just between Trump, between excuse me, Netanyahu and Gantz, but others. Interestingly, on the right, you already mentioned Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked, who are sort of the stars of the right wing. They might not be in the next Knesset. We don't know yet for sure because there's still some absentee ballots from military personnel to come in. They might just get into the Knesset, but they're certainly not a big success like they hoped they would be. And the Labour Party and Meretz Party on the left, or the left as a whole, took a very serious beating, especially Labour, which is at a historic low. That's the founding party of Israel and is now at a historic low. It seems like really we're left with sort of two major parties, uh, Likud and Blue and White. I wonder what you what you make of all that. And and in addition, is Blue and White, you know the figures in Blue and White, the, all four of the leaders there. Is that party going to be around for long or is this just a phenomenon for this election and to evaporate in a few months? Yeah, well, you know, we have that saying from the Talmud that the prophecy was given only to the fools. Yeah. Uh, but but by the way, we will know before long because uh, because if they start to structure the party, blue and white, if they start to operate as a true opposition to Bibi, if they start to operate as a team, then we will know that at least they have the intentions 
to stay together. Still, things can change. So we will know it before long. And by the way, partly if they all stay together in the opposition and none of them deserves to be this coalition. But that's one thing. The other thing is that the the, the failure or the fiasco of Bennett and Shaked, uh, the fiasco of this other guy who was pro-legalization, Faglin, and was supposed to be the surprise of the elections, is what is really amazing and exciting and thrilling with Israeli politics. You, I, I think you, you seldom find it in other political systems. The fact that the the system is robust, is vital, is healthy, is curious, is, you know, things are happening all the time. And, and that's because people are thinking, they don't take anything for granted. You know, the Chaked up until yesterday was on her way to be the prime minister someday. Mm-hmm. Bennett had a you know, had a plan B for the day after Bibi to take over Likud. Both of them were the most successful, the most appreciated, the most, you know, the coolest leaders on the right wing. Um, and 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 all of a sudden they disappear. Uh, and, you know, with Labour Party, it was a slower and, and, and more miserable process. But things happen and they happen sometimes uh, overnight. Um, so... Uh, the fact that we now have mainly two big parties, it could be good news in terms of, as I said before, many Israelis going to the right and the stability of the system when you have sort of an more like more an American-like bipartisan system. It's not there yet because we still have a lot of fractions. And because Israeli society is tribal, because you have the Arabs and the Orthodox and the secular and the left and the right and the, you know, the, the, the soft left and the soft right, uh, you need people to be represented. They need their voice to be heard. It's not like we can have only a, a blue party and a red party. Uh, but but uh, uh, the, the one thing that, and I guess we'll get to it uh, uh, towards the end of our conversation, the one thing that we have to ask ourselves is how much of it is BB-oriented? How much mm-hmm. of everything that is happening now is BB-oriented? which means what will happen the day after Bibi, because someday will be the day after Bibi. Yeah, I'm going to end by pushing pushing you towards a, a prophecy, uh, nonetheless, about when that comes. But just before that, a couple of short questions. So uh, f- first, a point exactly on what you're making. I think if you think of the Likud in blue and white, one of the very interesting things about this whole election campaign is that going in before Benny Gantz managed to coalesce blue and white around him, it didn't seem that there was a very serious challenge to Netanyahu. Of course, he had the legal issues, and that's a major cloud hanging over him still. But uh, but it did seem like Netanyahu was the frontrunner from from day one. And so to a certain degree, this whole election was a bit of theater. It was almost like the dress rehearsal for the real show. And the real show would be the day after Netanyahu. So if you think of Bennett and Shaked, they left a national religious-based party, a modern Orthodox-based party. They left that to found what they thought, what they called the new right. And the the idea was very clear. The idea was to be a right-wing alternative to the Likud. Maybe they could merger with the Likud in the future. Maybe they could take over the Likud. And this would be a road for each of them to become prime minister one day, still to be decided which one would be first, probably Bennett. But instead, they found themselves with, at best, a very small party and possibly both of them out of the Knesset, which is really phenomenal. I mean, you think of it... uh, they both have very senior posts. Shaked is the Minister of Justice and Bennett, the Minister of Education, and they're both out. Inside the Likud, if you think of many of the characters there, a lot of them are thinking, of course, about the day after as well. You have people like Gidon Saar, who's now going to be probably a senior minister again, and, and others who are vying for the possible day after. And that day after, 
as we saw last night, is not going to come from the electorate, but if it comes, it would come from the legal issues. So I'd like to end with with just two questions on the legal issue. The first, uh, you're also a legal expert. A lot of the campaign, or some of the campaign, certainly by Shaked, but also people in the Likud, was about reforming the Supreme Court, changing the, the structure of the ju- judiciary, and how judges are appointed. What's the prospects of that now? It seems to have robust support in the new right-wing coalition, and the new right-wing coalition may be at least as right-wing as the outgoing one. Yes. Again, this is one take on it. The other take would be that uh, the revolution led by Shaked to diminish the effectiveness and the independence of the Supreme Court and of many other gatekeepers of Israeli democracy, this revolution is not to be completed because Shaked will not come back to the Ministry of Justice. Now, will we have there another uh, political persona like Yariv Levin or other people from Likud or from the extreme right who think like her? This might very well be the case. But there I get back to Netanyahu. I think Netanyahu, after everything is said and done, is a Democrat. And Netanyahu stood by the Supreme Court in many instances in the past, when there was another justice minister, his name is Daniel Friedman in the Olmert administration, who tried to launch an offense on the court. I still believe that Netanyahu will not let his new coalition Uh, launch another kind of offensive against the Supreme Court. The only thing that can disturb that is his own personal legal problems. And there we get to the very concrete question, will he try to move forward with any kind of initiative, Mm -hmm. be it what we call the French law, which means that the prime minister cannot be indicted while in office, or another interpretation of the immunity law, which will mean that his immunity as a member of Knesset will not be lifted because of intricacies of the legal interpretation. Will he use his political capital and his majority in the Knesset to stop the indictments? I hope he will not. And I think that two major tests will be presented if it happens. One is a test to the decent politicians in the right, both within Likud and outside Likud, from Moshe Kahlon to Gilad Erdan, from Avigdor Lieberman to Gidon Saar. People who have already said that they will not raise their hands in favor of such initiatives which uh, disturb and distort and skew the rule of law in Israel. The other test will be to the health and to the strength of the legal system itself. Will the Supreme Court stand tall and strong in front of any such initiative and will the Israeli public, and, and, and us, by the way, the reporters, the media, the journalists, the gatekeepers of Israeli democracy, will go out and say, this is a red line, this is the, you know, the, the line in the sand that we will not cross, that we will not let anybody cross. Because if there are such grave suspicions, if there are such serious indictments, if there is 
a cloud of suspicions of, of, of grave corruption on the side, on the part of the prime minister, this has to be investigated, investigated, and this has to go to court. And only the court will decide if Bibi is guilty or innocent. And I think that Bibi knows that much. He knows that Israeli democracy is stronger, even more than him. So Ilana, thank you so much. I, I want to end with a question. I'm going to push you to make a prophecy, although, as you said, prophecy is for fools. A year from now, given the corruption charges, given the question of can he pass or will he pass uh, French law to give himself immunity, do you think Netanyahu is still prime minister a year from now? Or maybe we're speaking just after the elections to the 22nd Knesset, the next Knesset, uh, a year from now um, uh, in 2020? If I had to bet... I would bet that be it a year or a year and a half from now, or I don't know exactly the date, that the indictments will be served and that Netanyahu, one way or the other, will uh, will end his political career and the era of Bibi uh, will come to an end, be it by an indictment or by a plea bargain or any kind of, of deal, which, by the way, might be the best for everybody to buy the risks and to avoid the drama that can, you know, that can be bad for everybody. Uh, if I had to bet, this is where I would put my money. But given that we are speaking about the most unexpected, <laughs> skillful, and amazingly powerful politician that I have known, I wouldn't really bet. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I certainly wouldn't bet. And um, But if I had to... That would be my guess as well. But I would just say I think there are a lot of people on the left and also in the United States who are sort of yearning for this day after Netanyahu and thinking that his replacement will be the polar opposite of him. And I don't think that's the case either. My best bet, and it's a very weak one, but my best bet would be that probably Netanyahu, the Netanyahu era will end sometime soon, but that his replacement would still be from the Likud and that the basic era of Likud dominance, that is not nearly over, I think. But I'll give you, I'll give you before we say goodbye, I'll give you the optimistic, the most optimistic take on what happened tonight in Israel. Given that Netanyahu knows that he is on the threshold of, of the last year or couple of years in power, given that he has proven anything that needs to be proven in terms of his political skills and abilities, perhaps he will seize the moment. Perhaps he will, you know, catch history by the coattail and say, now I can make the dramatic move. Now I can go ahead and become part of history. Now I can take my car, drive up to the Mukata in Ramallah, meet Abu Mazen or whoever he can meet there and say, let's, let's talk. We can talk, I can deliver, you can deliver. We can try and change history. Can it happen? God knows. Well, since we're not supposed to agree too much on a podcast, I'll, I'll leave our disagreement for the very last end. I think <laughs> Netanyahu, um, I say this actually with some appreciation for what, she's, what he's achieved in the last year and a half, at least from his perspective, which is to say, until Trump came into the White House, Netanyahu was facing Clinton and then facing Obama, Bill Clinton, and then facing Barack Obama. Uh, 
presidents who were not predisposed to like him, shall we say, and he was not predisposed to liking them. And in that sense, he was always on defense. So he could tell his voters that he had kept Israel safe or withstood pressure from abroad, but there was very little he could show as legacy. The last year and a half, two years, have really changed that. He now can talk about the embassy in Jerusalem, about the Golan Heights, about the Iran nuclear deal, and it goes, the list goes on and on. And so my best guess of what Netanyahu will do is that he will be Netanyahu and that he will see these as great achievements, historic achievements, and fall very short of what you know, my other people might have done, which is you know, a grand move towards the Mukata and Ramallah. But of course, but, but I I'll, give you, I'll, give you, I'll give you one legacy, Nathan, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that none of us can take away from him, and you didn't mention. And, and forgive my sentimentality, but I'm saying that as a mother of three children, mm-hmm. all of whom have underwent military service. Uh, the last July, almost 500 rockets fell on the southern part of Israel, were launched from Gaza. I don't see any other politician who would take it and swallow it and don't start any kind of military operation and understand that there's nothing to gain from an escalation towards Hamas and we can only lose and lose in terms of lives of Israeli young men and women. And Netanyahu used his political capital to avoid an unnecessary war. And he talked about it last night. And he talked about it during the campaign. As hawkish as he is, he's the one politician that I can think of in the current Israeli scene that would be able to avoid the pressure from within to go to war. For me, this is his most important legacy. It is a major one. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's the flip side of exactly his caution on peace or diplomacy, etc. It's also caution on war. He's so hawkish that people don't notice sometimes that with such a long tenure, he's one of the least trigger-happy prime ministers Israel's had. He's gone to mm-hmm. one major conflict, the last conflict in Gaza, and that was a conflict he did not want. He was dragged into it by mistakes, including his own. Uh, but in all his years, that's the only major conflict. Compare that to prime ministers. Some of them had three, four years in office, and they already had a war in there. And in this sense, his legacy is very important, too. A former senior aide of his once said to me, he's, his legacy is, is intertwined with his ability to keep the overall quiet, more or less. Of course, it's not perfect quiet. Mm-hmm. But to keep things quiet and allow Israel to flourish, etc., under it. So... His bad side and his good side are perhaps uh, connected uh, very intimately. Uh, Ilana, I want to thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for all your wonderful work at Uvda, the years of investigative journalism. Uh, and it's been fascinating to talk to you. I'm, I hope we can do it again soon. Uh, so thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Oneida. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. The producers are Chris McKenna and Brennan Hoban. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Eric Abalahin provides design and web support. Our intern this semester is Quinn Lucas. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, 
which also produces Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, Intersections, 5 on 45, and Our Events Podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.